It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let's see. Should I leave with Charles Barkley? Uh, don't worry, non-sports fans. This isn't a basketball item. It's about CNN. But let me take a second to say it's also the Friday edition of the podcast. I hope you have a good weekend coming up. And a gentle reminder that Media Buzz, the TV show, airs Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. Um, so Chris Lick, who runs CNN, there's been all these leaks and trial balloons. You need somebody to put... Uh, in prime time at 9 o'clock, oh, we'll get John Stewart, oh, we'll get this one. Doesn't seem to happen. Well, now, uh, Charles Barkley of NBA basketball fame tells the New York Post he's considering a CNN show. Uh, quote, they are trying to pair Gail King and me. We don't have anything set in stone. I'm only considering it because of my respect for Gail. So you have a situation where both these people have other jobs. Gail King, of course, a mainstay of the CBS Morning Show, but has a longtime relationship with Chris Licht. And Barkley is part of the same company because he uh, signed a 10-year deal with Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, that, of course, the merged company that also owns CNN and TNT and TBS, where he does his sports reporting. And Barkley signed a 10-year contract for around $180 million. I guess he's a pretty valuable TV property. Anyway, he goes on to say, I just want to help the company because obviously it's an S show right now. Anything I can do to help. Well, this is why I might actually tune in because he's the guy talks about his own company and says it's an S show. Uh, but then the story goes on. It's kind of contradictory. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen at least till the fall because Barkley's not preparing for the NCAA uh, tournament and then the NBA playoffs, but Barkley would also need Gail King to agree. But then he keeps saying it wouldn't be a daily show. So how does that? How much does that help CNN? Also, Gail King is on early in the morning. So how is she going to be on at night? I don't see how the whole thing's going to work. But it's interesting fodder. Um, J.K. Rowling uh, of Harry Potter fame. I talked uh, to you here a couple few days ago about sitting down with this Witches Brew podcast uh, to talk about, to push back against uh, accusations that's been gone on for three years now, her saying, insisting that she's not anti-trans and that she's been unfairly accused. But the this is a pretty wide-ranging thing. So I'm looking at a story here in the Washington Post saying, Rowling says her former husband emotionally and physically abused her in the early 90s and used her Harry Potter manuscript to try to coerce her not to leave the marriage. Now, some of this, I guess, was known because she's talked about being a survivor of domestic abuse and sexual assault, but not the level of detail that apparently is in this podcast. So she married a guy named Jorge Arantes in Portugal. This is back in 92. Uh, They separated in 93, and then she went back. Uh, She once told uh, London's son that he slapped her, uh, he said there was no sustained abuse, like that's an excuse. Anyway, she left. She went back several times. She said he, the husband was searching my handbag every time I came home. I haven't got a key to my own front door because he's got to control the front door. I think he knew or suspected I was going to try to bolt again. 
Anyway, he knew what the manuscript meant to me because at a point he took the manuscript and hid it, and that was his hostage. Can you imagine? I mean, these days, of course, you'd probably have seven electronic versions of it, so you didn't need the actual paper copy, but this is the early 90s. Um, when she decided to leave her marriage for good after the birth of her daughter, Jessica, I remember thinking very clearly, she's not going to grow up and watch this happening to her mother. And then before going to her sister's home in Scotland, um, the manuscript still meant so much to me. If I wasn't able to get out with everything, he would burn it or take it or hold it hostage. That was her fear. Wow, imagine living with that. And imagine what would have happened if she was not able to liberate the first Harry Potter book. It's just, you know, kind of amazing. Um, Wall Street Journal was the first to break this. A guy named Carlos Watson. You would recognize him if you saw him. He was a former cable news anchor. Very charismatic guy. He founded this outfit called Aussie Media, was making the TV rounds, trying to get a lot of money for it. And uh, let's see, it was yesterday morning in Manhattan that he was arrested, charged uh, by the feds with falsifying information about Ozzy's performance, inflating its projected earnings. Uh, and this happened, it's actually the U.S. attorney in Brooklyn who made these charges after his former co-founder pleaded guilty to fraud. And it's kind of a wild story because the company kind of shut down several years ago after the New York Times kind of exposed some of the internal machinations, including that it was trying to line up a $40 million investment from Goldman Sachs, but had somebody use uh, voice technology to impersonate uh, somebody from YouTube. Anyway, this guy's got a lot of legal problems now. And the idea that he was once attracting serious investment shows that he was a very good salesman. Unfortunately for him, it is now alleged that he uh, broke a few rules on the way. Harvey Weinstein sentenced to another 16 years in prison. That means he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. He was already serving, uh, what was it, a 23-year sentence in New York after being convicted of uh, rape and sexual assault. Remember, there was then another trial in Los Angeles um, where he was only found guilty in the case of one of four Jane Doe's. But that was a woman we've seen, or some of us have seen at least, the um, video of this Italian actress uh, in the hallway, and Harvey's trying to talk her into coming into his room, and she's saying, no, no, no. Uh, that is alleged to have happened in 2013. He was convicted, uh, and uh, Jane Doe appeared, and she urged the judge to put Weinstein behind bars for life. There is no prison sentence long enough to erase the damage, she said. I've been carrying this weight, this trauma, that it was my fault for years. And, you know, Weinstein's lawyers were saying, look, he's almost 70. Uh, he doesn't get to see his kids. He is 70. He's in bad health. Um, please don't, you know, tack on this additional sentence. But maybe he should have thought of some of that uh, before he became a total sexual predator. And I have no hesitation saying that, A, because it's true, and B, because he's been convicted now on both coasts, New York and Los Angeles, 
and he will be in jail for a very long time. You know, it's hard for me to deal with this next item. I mentioned it yesterday when we didn't have the name identified. Uh, We have a Florida journalist who was killed in the Orlando area. His name is Dylan Lyons, and um, he worked for Spectrum News 13, and he had actually gone to a crime scene to report on a um, previous fatality. Also, I mentioned yesterday a nine-year-old girl was shot. Um, two other people were wounded. And, you know, you see this very emotional, and who can blame her? Other reporter doing this tearful stand-up on this colleague who was killed. Um, and she said, it is nice to see the media. We come together in solidarity in this moment. This is every reporter's absolutely worst nightmare. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, story number one. It's amazing, actually, how this toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, has kind of become the top story in the country. I talked at length yesterday um, about how it didn't get much attention in the first 10 days. But by the third week, which we're in the end of the third week now, um, there's so much politics surrounding it now that it is. First of all, it's just a horrible story. You've all seen the pictures of the plumes of smoke and how did this happen. Here's a New York Times piece saying that the Norfolk Southern freight train, the crew, tried to slow the train down before it derailed, according to a report from the NTSB. So safety investigators says this, they say this was 100% preventable. This didn't have to happen. It had to do with a wheel that overheated 253 degrees above the ambient temperature. So there were two sensors that didn't register the temperature. It wasn't considered high enough to sound an alarm. Finally, the third sensor, I guess, and when it got unbelievably hot, did sound the alarm, but that wasn't enough to enable the crew, which, who were carrying 115,000 gallons of vinyl chloride, a hazardous gas. So yesterday was the day that Pete Buttigieg showed up And, uh, you know, he's wearing the construction helmet and all of that. And he was asked repeatedly, you know, what took you so long? And he acknowledged. He says, I could have spoken out sooner. I could have come here sooner. Uh, But then he, you know, tried to pivot to um, all the efforts that the federal government is making, including his own DOT, um, to deal with the after effects. I mean, you still have people there who are afraid to give their family uh, regular water, even though tests supposedly show that it's safe, so a lot of bottled water. Donald Trump was there on Wednesday with his Trump water, uh, handing out some of that. Um, residents continue to report an array of lingering symptoms. This is troubling. Headaches, rashes, and they're even questioning, I mean, this is their home, whether it's safe to live there in the long term. So what does Trump do after getting back? He puts out on Truth Social... His ratings, except this is totally wrong because 
CNN, MSNBC, Fox News did not carry his visit live. They may have had a, a clip or two from later on. OAN and Newsmax did carry it live, but those are tiny outlets at this point. So he puts out a viewership report. Total people that saw coverage, social and traditional media, 178 million. Uh, Excuse me, the Super Bowl doesn't get 178 million. And if you're not covered by cable news, you're not getting 178 million. Well, it turns out the 144 million of that um, was social media. And I don't know how much higher um, the Super Bowl or any other big event would be if you throw that in. But he even claims that on traditional TV, 34 million people saw this. I mean, this is just made up. I don't know how else to put it. But beyond that, you know, Trump goes there. I think that was a good thing. Uh, You know, highlight the problem, score some political points. I don't have any problem with it. But he comes home and now he's bragging about his ratings, making it about him. So the New York Times has a larger, broader piece saying to Democrats, the train derailment and chemical leak. Uh, is a story of logic, action, and consequences. Rail safety regulations put in place by the Obama administration were intended to prevent just such accidents, but the Trump administration gutted them. There's a little bit more nuance to that, which I'll get to in a second. To Republicans, East Palestine is a symbol of something far larger and more emotional, a forgotten town in a conservative state like so many others in middle America struggling for survival against an uncaring megacorporation and an unseeing government. Wow. Uh, 4,700 people live in this town. Um, Politicians have begun parading through East Palestine with their own agendas. On Wednesday, it was Trump handing out campaign hats as well as his branded water and saying, you were not forgotten. That's actually a good message. It's actually why Mayor Pete should have been there a lot earlier. Um... So when the transportation secretary shows up there, he says, what I'm really proud of is the community I saw here. Uh, You've got federal agencies. You've got local first responders. You've got states. Most of all, you've got a community that's been through a lot. I think is pretty frustrated with people trying to take political advantage of this situation. Well, how does that exempt Pete Buttigieg showing up? I mean, he's actually trying to do damage control for the fact that for three long weeks, I mean, there was the head of the EPA went there, but he's not for whatever reason, a nationally known figure. Um, And, you know, the story points out that there was a derailment of an Amtrak train uh, outside of Philly back in 2015, and that's when uh, Barack Obama moved to mandate the installation of this life-saving automatic braking technology, although PolitiFact says that rule would have had no impact on this particular derailment uh, because the Norfolk Southern train would not have been covered. Now, the White House issued a formal statement on Wednesday, the day Trump was there. Republicans stopped dismantling rail safety and selling out communities like East Palestine to the rail lobby. Um, But it's gotten very political. And that brings me to The View. So Joy Behar is talking about this on The View. And she says this indicating the the Trump either rollbacks or uh, refusal to proceed with some of these rules having to do with rail safety. And, of course, the rail companies lobby against it. And she tells the people of East Palestine this. That's who you voted for in that district. 
Donald Trump, who reduces all safety, he did. They need to look past the photo op, these people. Who's doing the job here? Okay, what Joy Behar is saying is, it's your fault. She's almost saying, you deserve this happening to you. She doesn't quite say that. Megan McCain, former View panelist, ripped Behar on Twitter and said this was evil. But rather than expressing sympathy for these people, you know, who live in this hamlet, they're worried about their future. They're worried about chemicals in the water. They're worrying about thousands of fish dying. They're worrying about whether they can even continue to live there. She's saying that's who you voted for, as if it's, first of all, as if it's single-handedly Donald Trump's fault. And by the way, if these rail safety regulations were so crucial, how come Joe Biden, with an all-Democratic Congress, hasn't changed them in his first two years in office? So it gets a little bit more subtle, uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, Republican administrations are generally more pro-business, more likely to put businessmen in charge of regulatory agencies, and, you know, should be held accountable for that. But it's a little bit more complicated. But the last thing you want to do is blame the people. It reminds me of the first year of the Trump administration when liberals were in a state of shock that Donald Trump was even president. And when uh, there were proposals to get rid of Obamacare, which ended up failing by on the third try by a single vote, there were big league liberal columnists who I had respected who wrote pieces saying basically, you people out there, you deserve uh, to lose your health care. You deserve to lose your Obamacare because you voted for Trump. It was the same thing, blaming the people because of political choices they made. As it turned out, they didn't, and Obamacare survived. But, you know, blaming the voters, blaming fellow Americans, even if you have half a point, is never a good look. It makes you look heartless. It makes you look insensitive. It makes you look like scoring a political point or a debating point is more important than having sympathy for people uh, who may be in the situation where they're going to lose benefits or where there's going to be uh, hazardous chemicals spilled in their community. Let me move on to number two. Also happens to be a Trump story. That's a sheer coincidence. Um, federal judge yesterday ordering that Trump and Christopher Ray, the guy who runs the FBI, can be questioned under oath by attorneys for two former senior FBI employees who have filed a suit, and this got so much attention at the time, saying they were targeted for retribution after the FBI looked into Russia's interference in the 2020 presidential election. So the decision by a U.S. district judge here in Washington came in these lawsuits filed by former FBI senior agent Peter Strzok and former FBI lawyer Lisa Page. Now, you may recall, because this all came out and Trump talked about it endlessly, there were quotes from emails they had sent where it was pretty clear they were not fans of Donald Trump. They were also having an affair, uh, which Trump talked about all the time. Peter Strzok and his lover, Lisa Page, and we just loved mocking them. And, you know, it's they argue that they didn't do anything differently in terms of their jobs at the FBI, but their whole, you know, lives were exposed. So Peter Strzok wants reinstatement in his old job and back pay. He says he was unfairly terminated for criticizing Trump. Lisa Page says officials unlawfully released a trove of politically charged text messages she exchanged with Strzok. 
So basically, this has been cleared for deposition. And I guess, you know, given how slow these things are, we'll eventually get some kind of ruling on whether they were screwed over because they lost their jobs. They contend that they shouldn't have lost their jobs. And now we'll see what happens uh, with these depositions. Number three, the crazy, crazy case of this woman, Kors, the former foreperson of the special Georgia grand jury, going around shooting off her mouth on TV to the AP, to the New York Times, to CNN, to NBC, hinting, it was more than hinting, it was just kind of wink-wink, yeah, we know, uh, that Donald Trump was going to be indicted, or at least that this special grand jury, which can't actually return any charges, uh, recommended, uh, I think, an indictment of more than a dozen people. Well, is it Donald Trump, the journalist asked? And she would say, well, I, I can't really say. But you won't be shocked. There's no great plot twist here. The only person who decides whether anybody gets indicted here is the Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney, Fannie Willis, who must be appalled by all of this. So Andy McCarthy, who's writing I Respect, has a whole piece on this in National Review, uh, says this, that she, this has become a political farce. Democrats are kicking the rule of law to the curb to nail him. And he says, and let's be blunt, it's not just Cora's who broke the rules, and that she comes off as a starstruck goofball who, as she recalled between giggles, kind of wanted to subpoena Trump because she was the one who administered the oath when somebody's sworn in. You know, do you solemnly swear? And she's like, oh, that would have been so great. It would have been awesome. I mean, she just comes off like a giggly little teenager. Now, McCarthy goes on to say that this will be forgotten. It's not really going to affect the case. The only thing that will matter is whether the DA, who he accuses of her own partisan grandstanding, uh, can present a solid case uh, in the having to do with, you know, Trump calling the Republican Secretary of State and can you find me 11,780 votes. But in the court of public opinion, he notes, remember McCarthy is a former federal prosecutor, um, it may be a boost to Trump's effort to win the Republican nomination if, A, any formal charges are filed against him, uh, and let's remember the Georgia allegations are already well known, and B, it looks like Democrats are breaking rules and exploiting the criminal process as a political weapon. Now, McCarthy goes on to say Trump can't win a national election given his unpopularity with the general electorate. Well, that is certainly the conventional wisdom. And as the 2022 midterms show, um, he seems to, uh, unpopularity with the general electorate seems to harden the more his base of devoted supporters cling to him. In other words, he may well not be able to win a general election. We will find out. He certainly is more than capable of winning the Republican nomination, I would still say, without blinking that he's the front runner. Um, but if there's a criminal charge, they just, you know, Republican, the MAGA base is just going to say they're out to get him. You're abusing the criminal justice system. It, it could turn him into a martyr. So if this happens, says Andy McCarthy, uh, 
What's the point? To campaign for a deeply flawed 78-year-old man who can't win, and even if he could, would be a lame duck the moment he did? Meaning he could only serve one more four-year term, whereas Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, you name it, if they win the presidency, they could run for election and serve the full eight years. So if Emily Coors and Fannie Willis help Trump convince Republican primary voters that the Democrats' quest to indict him here, there, and everywhere is a politicized abuse of power, his bid for the GOP nomination could get a big boost. And then here's the kicker. Only politician in America who would be happier about that than Donald Trump? Joe Biden. And I'm totally in that camp. I mean, the one person President Biden wants to run again is somebody who is almost as old as he is, who he has beaten once already, and he's the only person in the Democratic Party who has proven that he can beat former President Trump. At the same time, if somehow Trump loses the nomination and you've got a guy who would be on the verge of being 82 on election day, running against somebody who's in his 40s or in her 50s, which I'm certainly not saying is past her prime. I think she's Nikki Haley is in her prime. Or Tim Scott, or you name it, the generational contrast is going to be is going to change the nature of the election. Even if nobody even says a word about it, it's so blatant then. So Biden is like, yeah, let's let's see Trump win the nomination. I, I'm happy for that rematch. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story number four, Jeff Bezos, who's got a lot of big companies, including having founded Amazon, is trying to get, it's now been confirmed, an NFL franchise. And that franchise is the Washington Commanders. Uh, Washington Post citing two sources familiar with the situation is saying that Bezos has hired an investment firm to look into the idea of bidding. And that's not just any investment firm. It's Allen & Company, big New York-based firm that is often involved in these transactions um, that include professional sports franchises. Now, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, Bezos has his space company. He has Amazon. He has the Washington Post. But still, he's super, ultra, mega rich. He's probably a little bit bored. And it's like, hey, I'd love to own an NFL team. I had thought that this wouldn't happen because the longtime owner of what used to be called the Redskins, Dan Snyder, clearly would like to maintain control, and he can decide if he only wants to sell off a share of the team and not the whole thing. A lot of other owners in the NFL not liking Dan Snyder, and I'll explain why, would very much like to see him sell the whole thing. And, you know, Bezos has got the money to do it, although he would, he would accumulate... Uh, or partner with other really, really rich people. Now, there's been speculation about, well, if Bezos goes for the Washington NFL team, maybe he'll sell the Washington Post, which he bought privately with his own money, I guess it's a decade ago now, for $250 million. I'm not sure I buy that. I think Bezos has got enough cash that he doesn't have to sell the newspaper. Uh, 
unless for some reason he's fed up with it, and it's probably never going to make a huge amount of money. But Bezos knew that going in. It gives him influence in the nation's capital and nationally, although he is not a heavy-handed owner who dictates what the editorials are going to say or what, how the coverage should be. And I think that's to his credit, and I think that's really helped the Washington Post. But as far as the football situation, um, Snyder and his wife announced in November that they had hired Bank of America to look into transactions involving selling the team. The team hasn't said whether the Snyders will sell all or part of the franchise. Four people familiar with the process uh, say they believe the entire franchise is being sold is the most likely outcome. I don't know. I know Snyder loves the status of being able to have VIPs come to the owner's box and watch the team play on Sunday, even though the team has not been a very good team for quite a long time. What this story also says is that Bezos' net worth, estimated at $118 billion by Forbes, would allow him to outbid any competitor. And I think that's true. That's why the $250 million for the Post is, is just like a footnote. But this is happening while the NFL is investigating, actually conducting its second investigation of Dan Snyder and the team's workplace, this one being led by a former U.S. attorney who's looking into financial improprieties. And, you know, the cheerleaders have alleged that they were mistreated and misused. Uh, this guy is very investigated, and uh, with, while any sale or franchise has to be approved by, I think it's three-quarters of the NFL owners. I think a fair number of those fellow owners would love to be rid of Dan Snyder and just think he's bad news for the league, all these investigations. Uh, so we'll see, you know, once you start hiring investment firms, and both sides have done that now, if there's a deal to be made, it'll be made. I mean, it may take a while. Uh, but, you know, I think... What else does Bezos want to do? He's already been to space in his rocket. He's already founded, uh, and he's no longer the day-to-day CEO, but, you know, Amazon is the company that changed the face of e-commerce. So he's done a lot, and, you know, who doesn't want to own an NFL franchise? Even a lousy one. Of course, he buys the lousy franchise and pours a lot of money into it, he could make it more competitive. It doesn't always immediately translate that rich guys uh, are able to use their big bucks to get successful sports franchises. But let's just say it doesn't hurt. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's wrap here with number five. I've talked, it's been a while since I've talked about this, about um, plant-based meat like an Impossible Burger or the Beyond Meat Burger, and they were very popular for a while. I tried them. I liked them uh, for people who were trying to eat less meat or no meat. I think they were a very plausible alternative. But here comes a piece in The Atlantic in which the author says she was having something that's new. Quote, I found myself thrown completely off guard by a strip of fake bacon. I was there to taste a new kind of plant-based meat, which, like most Americans, I've tried before but never truly craved in the way I've craved real meat. Well, that's fair. 
Um, but even before I tried the bacon, even saw it, I could tell it was different. The aroma of salt, smoke, and sizzling fat rising from the kitchen seemed unmistakably real. The crispy bacon strips looked the part too, tiger striped with golden fat and presented on a miniature BLT. Then crunch gave way to satisfying chew, followed by a burst of hickory and the incomparable juiciness of animal fat. Uh, she's a good food writer. I, <laughs> uh, but the whole point here, this is something new. It, it was not real bacon. But for a moment, it fooled me, she says. The bacon was indeed made from plants, just like the burger patties you can buy from Impossible or Beyond Meat. But it would be mixed with real pork fat. Well, kind of. What marbled the meat had not come from a pig, uh, but from fat cells taken from a hog and grown in a vat. So in other words, both the little bit of fat and the larger burger, and they're also, you know, uh, faux chicken and faux sausage and, those, and so forth made by these companies. She said makes all the difference in the world. It really does change the taste so it feels like you really are eating juicy meat, um, even though the fat itself, and there's just a little bit of it, and that's all that's needed apparently, um, is not real. And as the larger picture, the Atlantic piece says that once the novelty of plant protein wore off, the high price, middling nutrition it is true. The, the the burgers are relatively high fat, and I've never understood that. Well, of course, you want it to taste good enough to be a, um, a competitive product. But at the same time, a lot of people who would eat uh, these kinds of foods, I think, are, are health conscious. And so if you're going to get something and it's also got, you know, 23 grams of fat or whatever it is, Maybe it's not doing what you want. Anyway, the piece goes on to say that Burger King, McDonald's, Dunkin' have kind of lost interest in selling um, these faux burgers, um, that even these two giant companies, Beyond Meat and Possible Foods, have announced layoffs. Lab-grown fat might be the bridge. Well, I'm willing to try that. Uh, it goes on to say the coconut oil, Solid at room temperature, but melts under relatively low heat, so it spills into the whole cooking pan. Anyway, the head of the Good Food Institute, which advocates for meat alternatives, um, is quoted as saying that replacing those plant oils with cultivated animal fat uh, would maintain the flavor and juiciness that people expect of real meat. And... The author says, well, you know, the other good thing here is that this can be made, marketed, and eaten without harming animals. And I think it's an interesting case. I wonder how long it will take to come to market. I'd definitely check it out. Um, of course, then you got to look at the nutrition of it. And if it's sky high, maybe you just prefer it to real meat for other reasons. Well, that'll give you something to think about as you get hungry this weekend. Again, this is not available for sale quite yet. I do hope you have uh, a good weekend coming up. I thank you for sharing this time with me. Um, and I'll remind you about Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. With that, I will sign off. I'll be here Monday. We will see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.